At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. So we're moving from the study of excess, so I suppose to the study of deficit uh, in terms of ingestion anyway, activity. So welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me. And uh, Hannah's, uh, well, you'll, you'll tell them what you've, uh, you're working on, but why don't you start off by telling us again, you know, like, as Ryan did, why you came to work with us here at Imperial and where you came from. Yeah, so I am Hannah. I'm a third year PhD student, um, currently based at the Centre for Psychedelic Research. So I originally did my bachelor's degree in pharmacology, and this was kind of fueled by my own experience of mental health, so specifically anorexia, which I don't really mind mentioning um, right here. So I had found that treatments for this were kind of particularly ineffective, um, something that I'd experienced myself. I was kind of quite shocked by the methods that were used and how weighted on kind of treatments and how weighted on kind of weight restoration it was in, in terms of instead of psychological treatments. So I kind of wanted to pursue a career that was hopefully going to have some impact on the treatments that could be offered to people with eating disorders, anorexia, but also other mental health conditions. And at the same time that I was doing my bachelor's degree in pharmacology up at Leeds University, all of this work started to come out, or I started to see all of this work from yourself, Dave, and Robin Carter-Harris um, on the potential of psychedelics to treat um, depression. And something kind of just clicked in my head that after my own experience with mental health conditions, that actually there might be something that is potentially more effective and other people might not have to go through what I did years and years of, you know, just being told to not drink coffee for your anxiety or just eat, you know, a bit more food and you were just going to get better. So it was a bit of hope and something that I thought would give me kind of fulfillment in my life and hopefully potentially help other people. So you came to us yeah. to do psychedelic research in, in the field that you was most close to your to your own personal experience. Yeah. And it's been tough though, hasn't it? Because not only, <laughs> I can tell you it's been tough, not only for, as yeah. you might imagine, the emotional reasons, but also because of COVID. I mean, you came at exactly the wrong time. Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah, that was pretty unlucky. So I arrived, well, I'd, I'd actually done an internship for quite a while at the centre prior to my PhD. And then I, I did my master's in translation of neuroscience. <laughs> And yeah, then COVID hit and we had this entire clinical trial looking at psilocybin for anorexia all ready to go. And then the world kind of shut down. So it made it quite difficult. And I think for a condition already where people aren't really that keen to get themselves involved in treatment, they're quite resistant to, reco they're quite resistant to recovery. This addition of, you know, now not being able to travel across the country and treatment centres not being as keen to you refer their patients to us for this clinical trial. To say it was hard to recruit people is an understatement. 
So it's been a couple of years of a lot of hard work, but we have finally just finished our clinical trial a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago now, I suppose. But yeah, been interesting. <laughs> well, I want to say, you know, you've not only survived, you've done brilliantly and, uh, and the results are stellar. But before we get to the results, why mm. don't you explain to people the theory and, w okay. and then tell people <laughs> what you've been doing? Why would we do the, the study in the first place? Yeah. So it's hard to kind of pinpoint what exactly it is about psychedelic assisted therapy or psilocybin assisted therapy specifically here that would be what it would work on in anorexia because the psychopathology of anorexia and all eating disorders is not that clear at the moment. There's a lot of theories to do with is there a genetic basis? Is it an interaction with the environment and psychosocial factors? So it is hard to say what it is that we're exactly looking for that we think is going to work, but there are a few theories. So I suppose starting with kind of the, the most basic one or maybe the most obvious is that it's thought that there's serotonin dysfunction um, in anorexia. Serotonin is related to appetite, impulse control, mood, impulse control and mood, so just like in depression. So it's the same theory as you might have when looking at psychedelics for depression and anxiety, that they have a similar potentially mechanism of action. Then you can move on to, I suppose, kind of the characteristics of anorexia. So cognitive inflexibility in particular. So this is where, so people who are cognitive inf inflexible in terms of their cognitions, when their environment changes around them, they struggle to kind of change their thoughts and behaviours to reflect those changes in their environment. And this is something that's seen a lot in people with eating disorders and anorexia. And this leads to kind of those really rigid, like thinking patterns and behaviours relating to food and exercise. And it has been shown in previous research that psychedelics, so recently over at Johns Hopkins with psilocybin and also some work with ayahuasca, um, that actually kind of ease this really inflexible thinking, allow for, you know, people to just kind of see things differently, and open this window of opportunity to kind of change these patterns and hopefully try and do things a bit differently. And there's kind of the basic one as well. So with anorexia there's a lot of comorbid anxiety and depression so you'll find that most people who have anorexia also have anxiety and depression so we've obviously seen with other psychedelics that there's improvements in these disorders as well so there could just be the basic improvements in quality of life that are caused by these improvements in their depression anxiety that go with their anorexia as well there's a lot of theories and i suppose that's why our study is so massive is because we can't really say what we think it's directly going to work on in terms of the disorder. We, we're having to collect a huge amount of data in terms of imaging data, behavioural data, interviews, to really, well, hopefully be able to have some kind of idea of what it is that this treatment is directly working on so that in future studies you can uh, maybe slim it down a bit more and yeah, work on something a bit more specific. So tell people what you did. Well, <laughs> the study, explain the study briefly. I mean, I guess yeah. the whole, you know, it would take too long to go through it all. You know, what's the core of the, of the process? So we conducted a clinical trial. So it's actually the only clinical trial at the Centre for Psychedelic Research at the moment, which comes with its own difficulties. So we managed to recruit 21 participants in total. So we aimed for 20. So we were pretty happy with that in the end. And that was spectacular, by the way, to get 21. <laughs> So the people that we recruited had a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. This was confirmed by their eating disorder service and their GP. They were aged between 21 and 65 years old. And we did only recruit females just because it is most prevalent in females and it allows for, for us to remove the variability in terms of the imaging. 
And these participants underwent three dosing sessions with psilocybin. I'm not able to share what the specific doses are at the moment, but they were given up to 25 milligrams of psilocybin, which is something that we did share with them. That's a trip dose. A 25 milligram dose yes. is the standard trip dose we use in depression yeah. and other studies. So we did share that with them, I think, just because it was such a big moment for them to come into this study when already there was resistance to treatment for them to know that they were going to receive uh, a therapeutic dose at some point. I think helped with the nerves and the reasons why they were doing it. So, yeah, they underwent three sessions um, with two guides, obviously, for each of the sessions. Um, these, they all had some experience with eating disorders, which we've now realised is you know, an absolute essential when you're working with a condition that is a bit more complex. And I think that is definitely something for other teams to take on board moving forward, that this work couldn't have been done without experts on the condition in the room. Um, Does he explain what the guides do? So... During the experience, there's usually two guides with you, so a psychiatrist or a psychologist or someone that has experience with psychedelics, and they basically just guide you through the experience. So it's about four to six hours in total. In the experience itself, the guides are maybe less directive, they're more there um, to just support the, part the participant during the actual experience. It's more of an inward journey where headphones are worn with um, kind of a specialist playlist that's played throughout the session and an eye mask. And they are prepared before the dosing session by their guides on kind of when to ask for help, how to navigate the landscape of this psychedelic experience on their own, but knowing that there are two experts next to them if needed. And then the next day they returned for an integration session, which again was with their two guides. And this is where they were actually able to talk more about their experience in depth, something that they might have wanted to do during their experience, but they weren't able to. So really delve into actually what happened, what they might have learned from it and how to integrate that into their life moving forward. Yeah, so they have the experiences and then and then what else do they do? We in record them, the we record we record them, we record easy, stuff. we just we'll talk about our scanning in a minute, but what about what are the measures we explain how we kind of measure and estimate the impact? Yeah, so in our study specifically we had Quite a lot of imaging as well. So like Rayan had already spoken out, we did some MRI imaging. So similar to what is done with the gambling addicts. So this was where we were able to look at basic brain changes um, before and after the study, but also specific tasks. So we were able to look at how participants were responding to food videos and whether these were causing any responses in their brain that we might not see um, in healthy individuals. Also, how they kind of connect to their body internally, so something called interceptor awareness, so kind of their internal bodily signals, which has been shown to be slightly reduced in people with anorexia, where they kind of turn it off and they, they listen to their body less. So this is something that we also were looking at with the MRI imaging. We were also using EEG, which is a, a measure that's slightly different to the MRI, which actually looks at the electrical signals in your brain as opposed to the blood flow in your brain, which is what MRI looks at. And using this, we're actually able to use a really exciting paradigm that can measure plasticity um, in the brain using a, using a visual stimuli. So this is something, it is a paradigm that's being used internationally at the moment, specifically in Auckland. And we're using it in all of our studies at the moment, but it's actually the first, the most innovative way of being able to look at neuroplasticity in humans as opposed to animal models, which is how it's been investigated so far. Do you just want to explain a little bit about we haven't really touched on neuroplasticity. Yeah. So just say, just want to say a few words so about that. Again, we're working, we're getting her through all the questions in her thesis. When she <laughs> does her, she got to watch. No, no, but it's good to practice. <laughs> you can become even more perfect. 
So yeah, that is one of the topics of my PhD is how psilocybin can affect neuroplasticity in the brain of, of people who have anorexia nervosa. So neuroplasticity put simply is kind of how malleable the brain is. So specifically when new neurons are developed, when new connections between these neurons, so neurons being cells within the, the brain, how many connections there are, the development of new connections in the brain. And it's really related to learning and memory. So this is how you're able to learn, how you're able to form memories in different areas of the brain. And it has been shown in anorexia that this is slightly um, reduced. So there is a lot of research in animal models at the moment that psychedelics have the potential to potentially enhance this neuroplasticity. And by doing that, allow for an enhancement of learning, which could potentially enable this kind of increasing flexibility, um, a different way of thinking. So we're using this paradigm to measure specifically in the visual cortex in the back of the brain using um, a visual stimuli, which, yeah, I can't, we haven't actually looked at the data yet for this study, but hopefully that's... So the prediction is that the brain will be more, you'll, get, you'll see more, more of mobile, a yeah. responsive brain as it was. And so we've got a few minutes left, so let's talk about the how people felt about their eating disorder. What did you think psychedelics did? How, how? In terms of the results, yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. It's not published yet. It isn't, but, no. But, but it's very exciting. So share the, share the excitement with the audience. So, yeah, I mean, in ter we did have positive results. I think it's important to say that in terms of, it's very different to depression, so it's not like you can just wake up the next morning and you're cured. It's still a lot of hard work. But I think some of the main takeaways that we found from this work is that People had kind of a lot more self-compassion for themselves, self-love for themselves, kind of appreciated their bodies a lot more than they did before. Kind of a, a better understanding of maybe where their eating disorder had developed from, which is something that they wouldn't really get from regular treatment, which is very centred on kind of weight restoration and eating. Um, they were really able to delve into their lives and maybe what it was. And obviously they might not have had time in our study to really work on that but they definitely left the study having a better understanding of maybe what they needed to work on and I think we definitely saw quite a lot more motivation leaving the study you know that they were really ready to go and engage in whatever treatment was waiting for them on the outside and that yeah they were ready to kind of say goodbye to the anorexia kind of thank it for what it had done for them over those years protecting them from whatever it was that they needed protecting from at the time but that they were yeah ready to to move on so Definitely positive, and obviously you'll all hear a lot more about it moving forward. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's because uh, it's, I don't know. I mean, I presume most of the people in the study have been ill for quite a long time, haven't they? Yeah. So I think the average duration of illness was, off the top of my head, I think it was fourteen years. So yeah, it was a long time, and I'd say that that is we were working with a very specific population of people who had been chronically unwell. We weren't working with adolescents who had just developed a disorder where it was kind of quite superficial and very based around kind of, oh, I don't like my body or I, I want to be thinner. This was some really, really ingrained disorders that we were working with. People who had lived with this for the majority of their adult lives couldn't really remember who they were before their eating disorder. So obviously that is incredibly difficult because they're trying to rediscover who they are when they can barely even remember who they are because when they when it started they were children so it is like entering into a completely new life and waving goodbye to their eating disorder so it's hard I, I, I can't even imagine the feeling of yeah having to leave that part of you behind that's helped you through so much of your life 
But anyway, there's, it's very hopeful, and I guess uh, when it gets into the published domain, we will, yeah. it'll uh, spark a great deal of interest, and I imagine quite mm. a few other groups will be wanting to to learn from us and uh, and take it yeah, forward. Yeah, definitely. And and you will be you'll have your PhD, and you'll be another doctor. Congratulations. Any questions for Hannah? There's a question at the very back. Hi, I was wondering whether there was any binge eating episodes that the patients had and also whether there is any plans to extend to like adolescents, maybe to if, if you can start earlier so that yeah. people don't have to suffer for so many years. So I think in our, do you mean it particularly in our study? I think there was maybe a couple. We definitely tried to recruit more restricting subtype just so there was less variation in the participants and binge purge kind of brings its own complications in terms of cardiac risk. I do believe we recruited a couple of people who had binge purge subtypes. So I think there were a couple of binging episodes, but nothing, yeah, nothing substantial. And that was something that we really tried to screen out for just in terms of kind of physical stability. Would you were thinking about bringing it earlier into the treatment uh, algorithm? I mean, yeah, I think it, it was definitely best to start with an older population. Obviously, there was already concerns in terms of the safety and that's why everybody kind of started so gently because they're so physically vulnerable. And obviously, going slightly younger, there's even more vulnerability physically and psychologically. I think it's like working with two different disorders, really. I, I, I do think it should be done. Obviously, I don't think there's been any studies with psychedelics that I know of below the age of 18. So I don't know how young you were really thinking. I think from our experience, working with older population, I think our average age was 31. It is really much more of an ingrained disorder where it's not about the body. It's not about the shape. And I think the younger that you kind of go and the more early in the disorder it is, that's more what it centers around. So I think it would be different working, not that it wouldn't be helpful, but I think an older population was, they had probably had more to work with and they were probably readier to kind of delve into what the, under, they, they were aware that it wasn't about their body and about their shape more so than maybe younger people would be. And also, I guess the need, you know, the fact that they've been through multiple other treatments yeah. without much success means that yeah. you can really justify it. My question's more centered around methodology. Um, how does the visual system allow you to infer, make inferences on neuroplasticity? It's quite complex. <laughs> well, the point is, yeah, neuroplasticity occurs everywhere in the brain. It's just that we've got the tools to look at the visual system because we can provoke changes in it. It's very much harder to provoke changes, say, in the emotional systems. So what we're really looking for is, is somewhere in the brain where we can measure neuroplasticity to test the theory, which is sort of a theory that psychedelics do change neuroplasticity in humans. We haven't got really much data on that at present. And the, the idea would be that maybe, well, certainly the psychedelic experience or the post-psychedelic experience would put the brain in a more plastic state, which we believe then allows people to be much more creative in terms of their dealing with their past and also thinking about the future. Mm. Uh, really interesting. Thanks a lot. You mentioned the uh, mental health and these themes that's come up. How much or if any uh, psychotherapy was provided to the patients as part of the study? I mean, yeah, it was obviously psychedelic-assisted therapy, so there was quite a lot of a substantial psychotherapy or, you know, a psychological support anyway throughout the study. I would say we leaned or our therapists leaned quite heavily on maybe like emotion-focused or compassion-focused work. They did have sessions of eight hours with the therapist, three of those, and then 
five preparation sessions and I think five integration sessions in total. So it is a long time to spend with people who obviously have experience um, in eating disorders. So yeah, there was quite a, a substantial amount of psychological support or psychotherapy or whatever kind of therapy you want to call it throughout the study alongside the experience. And as you emphasised when you were talking, we did have very trained, very experienced mm. eating disorder therapists with us. And, and that we thought was necessary. I think we agree it was necessary it in hindsight. Was, yeah. it's, the, the, issues, the issues are really mu quite much more complex than the mm -hmm. ones that would come up in depression because the, you know, the, there's a massive behavioral change as well as, uh, as an emotional change. Uh, last question. I just want to ask, to what degree do you think neuroplasticity is the cause of the treatment? Because SSRIs do cause some neuroplasticity. And but they don't seem to work as well as psychedelics, or at least I don't know about the results from your trial. But I was just wondering, to what degree do you think neuroplasticity actually does make a difference? Since SSRIs also have that, but they don't have maybe as good as a clinical yeah. effect. I mean, I don't, I don't. You'll probably want to add to this after, but I think I personally don't believe that psychedelic-assisted therapy is purely kind of a neurobiological effect so I don't think it is down to just inducing plasticity and that's it obviously there's a lot of psychological work that goes on at the same time and it's for psychedelics it's just something unique where they allow this different experience to see things differently which obviously you don't get through SSRIs even though they also do induce neuroplasticity so it's a combination of the opportunity for psychological change that's induced by the neuroplasticity because obviously this could be negative it could be positive it's kind of what you do with that that leads to either the you know hopefully the therapeutic effect so I do think it contributes but I think there's so many other things that contribute to the effect and obviously they're the things that we're still figuring out through the work. I agree I don't think plasticity itself is going to solve the problem. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Harry.